0: You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Today we've got an outstanding interview to present to you with the kind of political insight into what's happening at the highest level of D.C. politics you're not going to find anywhere else. Christine Pelosi is an author, a lawyer, and someone who really lives, eats, and breathes democratic politics as an activist who spent a significant amount of time training progressive candidates for Congress, After having spent years working on the Hill, we asked about her new book, The Nancy Pelosi Way, which just came out on Skyhorse Publishing late last year. In this interview, she shared a poignant story that's not inside the book, but which reveals just how far back and how dedicated Christine is to the progressive cause. That story, and quite a bit of our conversation, is about the Middle East since we spoke right after news broke that Trump struck down the top Iranian general, sparking an international crisis. Here's my fascinating interview with elected DNC member, Christine Pelosi. I'm here with Christine Pelosi. She's the chair of the California Women's Democratic Caucus, an attorney, and an activist mother, whose new book, The Nancy Pelosi Way, just got released by Skyhorse Publishing last month. Christine, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm well. I'm very concerned about uh, friends who have family and loved ones in Iran, as well as uh, members of our military families who are uh, seeing loved ones redeployed to the Middle East uh, this time uh, surrounding the president's um, airstrikes. So I'm concerned about that. I'm glad we have a strong voice for peace and Speaker Pelosi at the helm in the House and um hoping that everyone who has been part of the resistance will will rise up with one voice and say no war in iran
0: let's jump into to that subject um and the shot her around the world at baghdad international airport last night uh, president trump assassinated iran's second most powerful official almost immediately quote unquote world war 3 started trending on twitter but in this country the power to declare war is vested in congress in strictly your your personal opinion did trump overstep his bounds by carrying out an act of i guess war against Iran, regardless of the lower level legal justifications his team is professing after the fact?
1: Donald Trump should have consulted with Congress, and he should have consulted with our allies before, not after the assassination of the Irani general. Presidents Bush and Obama had both received actionable intelligence uh, on the same Iranian general and other uh, leaders in Iran, and specifically and deliberately decided not to take them out, despite the ability, the logistical ability to do so, and the strong desire to combat terrorism. So you have to ask yourself, does this administration, which up until last week was attacking and trashing members of the intelligence community and career foreign service officials within the United States government as the deep state suddenly have a plan with respect to our allies, with respect to the region, and of course, with respect to the diplomatic surge that is going to be so essential to make sure that this does not escalate into outright uh, war between Iran and the United States of America.
0: Again, speaking for yourself only, uh, do you think Trump Assassinated this uh, general because it's a massive distraction to his impeachment trial?
1: I think it's really unfair to consider war a distraction. I think that we want to say he might want to divert attention, but let's be careful about using that word distraction because, you know, there are people. whose lives are at risk because of what he's doing, the most important job of the president is to be the commander in chief. And as I said yesterday morning, actually, on a radio interview about the Nancy Pelosi way, what we expect from our commander in chief is someone who walks into any mission. Now, this was before the airstrikes. But I said and walks into any mission. You have to have a plan. You have to have coalitions. You have to have diplomacy and you have to have an exit strategy. Those are the four elements that are absolutely essential. We didn't have them in Afghanistan under President Bush. We didn't have them in the war of choice in Iraq under President Bush. And we certainly don't have them now with the bombing in Iraq by President Trump. So it's vitally important that we show people two things. One, the president is impeached. He was impeached because he abused his power by failing to execute the law that he signed to provide bipartisan military aid to Ukraine and then covered it up and then instructed his administration officials to cover it up. And it's important to note that he's engaged in the same activity with respect to Iran that he did with respect to Ukraine, which is to say, to go rogue for his own political purposes without consulting Congress, and in violation of international laws and norms. So this is very important for people to see that the same conduct that got him impeached with respect to Ukraine is being displayed with respect to Iran.
0: Do you think that this impeachment trial upcoming is going to be fair? You know, because right now it looks like McConnell's shifting things around. And even though there's new evidence, obviously, that's been presented that, uh, Putin advised Trump on Ukraine and he took his word for it. And, you know, there's obviously the Pentagon thought that what he was doing was illegal and also proof that Zelensky told Senator Murphy that, um, you know, he was absolutely pressured by Trump uh, in that in that respect to investigating Biden. Um, you know, do you think that any of this is going to tilt the Senate trial to make it a fair trial instead of bent towards proving Trump's innocence?
1: There's no way to prove Trump's innocence, no matter what they do. He may be able to convince the Republicans to not remove him from office, but that doesn't change the fact that he was impeached. It doesn't change the fact that um, he abused his power. The only thing that will give us impartial justice is public sentiment. And so it's really important, as Speaker Pelosi always says, quoting Abraham Lincoln, public sentiment is everything. It's very important that people call their senators and insist on fair rules uh, for the Senate trial. It is very important that people continue to clarify the facts through this fog of war, um, the facts about Iran and the facts about Ukraine, because what we will find over and over and over again is an effort by Mitch McConnell to coordinate with Donald Trump. The only thing that will change that is if, in Mitch McConnell's estimation, he might lose power. If he feels that his Senate Republicans are under great intense public pressure to allow witnesses, he'll change course and tell the president We've got to have some witnesses, but that's the only thing that's going to matter is people calling their senators, writing their senators, speaking out about the facts, not just calling for impartial justice, but reminding people what it looks like and what those witnesses are saying. And in the meantime, let's also understand that the courts are very, very strong in their rulings. There's another set of hearings going on today with the Department of Justice lawyers who are being hammered in court by the judges uh, who are saying this is, you know, basically this is a specious argument that you don't have to comply with Congress. So again, McConnell was just quoted as saying the House has done enough damage. It's time to end things. But The fact of the matter is the damage is being done to our Constitution and to our rule of law by Donald Trump and by Mitch McConnell. And the only thing that will change that is if Republicans fear that they will lose Senate seats. And if Mitch McConnell sees his majority in trouble, he will pivot.
0: Find out more about Meet the Candidates 2020, my new book series of voter guides authored by Dworkin Report producer Grant Stern. It's the only place you can read my opinion and a factual portrait of each major Democratic candidate in one place. Buy the book now at the link inside this episode's notes at grantstern.com or your local Barnes & Noble. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. So before we talk about the book, I wanted to ask you a couple questions to more personally introduce you to our listeners. For example, I mentioned that you're an attorney. Uh, Can you please tell our listeners a little bit about your professional career and experience?
1: Well, I've been involved in politics since the stroller walking precincts with my family and very engaged in, in public service. I was a public law interest scholar at Hastings College of the Law after serving as the California Democratic Party executive director in between Georgetown University and Hastings And when I graduated, I worked in the city attorney's office and the district attorney's office in San Francisco, prosecuting sex crimes and domestic violence before uh, moving to Washington, D.C. and working for the Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Clinton Gore administration. And then as a chief of staff on Capitol Hill for four years from 2001 to 2005, including uh, during 9-11 and its aftermath uh just horrible, horrible day. And uh and since two thousand and five have been the director of the Congressional Candidates Boot Camp that we uh used to help elect uh progressive uh pro-labor Democrats to office um, with AFSME, the Public Service Workers Union. In terms of the, my legal work that I'm doing now, I'm general counsel for We Said Enough, which is the nonprofit formed after we launched the Me Too politics movement. A little over two years ago, our founder, Adama Iwu, was a silence breaker on the cover of Time magazine. I work a lot to try through my service as chair of the California Democratic Party Women's Caucus and elected member of the Democratic National Committee to increase the role of women, people of color, LGBTQ, Californians and Americans in public service, to reduce the role of, of money in politics and to try to root out the sexual harassment discrimination bullying, and abuse that is still rampant in public life, including unfortunately uh in my own beloved Democratic party so I think it's uh really important as one who deals with whistleblowers on an at least a weekly basis in in the context of my work fighting sexual harassment uh, that we honor whistleblowers and the and the work that they're trying to do to um shine a light on what is wrong, whether that's somebody shining a light on abuse within a campaign or uh, within a presidential administration. And so those are some of the things that guide what I do. And of course, Scott, uh, as you know, I've been uh, very active on fighting for a Trump-Russia investigation ever since I was a member of the Electoral College and one of the uh, self-described Hamilton electors who um, called for an investigation into all of this over three years ago. And while we didn't get an electoral college briefing before we met in December of 2016 as an electoral college, we did unanimously pass in my state of California a motion by our electors to have an investigation. We did push for what became the Mueller investigation. And uh, we will continue to push to see that justice is done and that our elections are secure because right now they're not. And we want to make sure that we are free from voter suppression and voter depression. And so that work informs the communities and coalitions that I try to build as we try to re-elect Nancy Pelosi as Speaker, win back the Senate, and of course win the White House.
0: One of the many issues you confront uh, publicly is the needed gun reforms in our country. Could you please tell our listeners about how you take action each and every day your daughter goes to school?
1: When I was at young prosecuting attorney it was really interesting to me most of my cases didn't you know weren't cases that the whole hall of justice were buzzing about but the ones that always got attention were the gun cases anytime i took a gun off the street cops i didn't even know would come up to me and say hey hey good victory good victory heard you got a good verdict glad that god that gun is off the street um you know they know they know law enforcement knows the danger it is uh you know to have guns in the wrong hands and uh so i have long been um an advocate for gun violence prevention i have uh in the 13 years that i ran the california democratic party platform committee we always talked about it there i live just a few blocks from 101 california street which was the massacre in california that started the um, push for the assault weapons ban by barbara boxer diane feinstein and nancy pelosi our representatives and um and frankly, is the reason that anytime you go into an office building anywhere in the country, you have to, you know, show your ID and say what floor you're going to and all that. They didn't used to have that before 101 California. So I think about that all the time, as I as I walk uh, past that building to go to the bus stop or to go downtown. And ever since uh, Sandy Hook, where you had the massacre of these little children in their classroom, every single day since then. I've had myself or my husband take a picture of our daughter uh, before she goes to school. I have a great collection of Bella photos, but it's always one of those things. I want to know what was she wearing Uh, just in case, just in case. And that started when she was in preschool and we still do it every day. And it's one of the things that's the most haunting as a parent. You know, you as a parent, you're making an implicit promise to make the world safer, fairer, freer for your child. And, uh, of course we all want to protect our children and and love other children as if they are ours. And what's so haunting is that even the massacre of these little innocent children and these six educators who threw their bodies on top of the children to try to give them one last measure of dignity and hope and, and community and love, um, is that even after that, the NRA still had a stranglehold over um, over the Republican Senate. And so hopefully that will change next year. But the fact that I have to take a picture every year, the fact that my daughter, you know, has, uh, you know, what she would call panic attacks during the gun drills that they do, you know, we're raising this uh, lockdown generation, as the Parkland kids name themselves. And so I always think about it in, in two ways. One is a mom, what am I doing to make sure that Bella's generation is safe and also, uh, and as an advocate and as a daughter of Nancy Pelosi, who every day is under attack, even on Christmas, the president was mean tweeting her. But, you know, she works with those families every day and, and she's not going to stop fighting for them just because, uh, you know, she got mean tweets or, or political or personal threats.
0: So you brought up a great point there. Um, can you tell our listeners about some of the already passed House bills that GOP Senate leader McConnell is holding hostage to the NRA's demands? Right now, like what which house bills have passed already?
1: Well, I think there's, there's two main bills that we really have to be concerned about. H.R. 8, uh, the background checks bill that closes the, the gaps in uh, to make uh, background checks for guns universal. And it was named H.R. 8 because it was introduced eight years to the day that Gabby Gifford survived her assassination attempt that killed some of her constituents, including a, a, a little girl who had gone to see her, Christina Green, and also a federal judge. Who, who went to Gabby's Congress on your corner and also H.R. 1112, uh, the Charleston loophole named because of the assassination that happened in uh, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, represented by House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. And, and I want to just mention with respect to H.R. 1112, uh, closing the Charleston loophole so that you have to get a background check even if you buy your gun online or at a gun show. We thought really into that moment that you know, a lot of us did, that we were raising an equality generation. And, you know, the old racists were just going to die off, right? Right. This younger generation was going to be more equal, more free, uh, more proud of their own identities and those of of each other, more racially integrated and harmonized. And so when you had this young 20-year-old white supremacist say he wanted to start a race war, be welcomed in by Black congregants who were praying, and then turn around and shoot and kill them and wound them, uh, that's when we, you know, it, it sort of shattered the myth that racism was somehow going to die off, right? Because it's there among youth as well. And it, it has to be rooted out everywhere. So not only do we have to pass H.R. 8 and H.R. 1112, again, contact your senators uh, and, and push them for a vote. But also, we have to make sure that we are funding equality and diversity education.
0: This episode of The Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. Let's, let's, talk, let's switch gears and talk about your new book, uh, The Nancy Pelosi Way. There's something she said at a recent town hall that jumped out to me about the speaker's political mindset, and it was, quote, unquote, I'm not on a timeline. I'm on a mission. How does that statement relate to Speaker Pelosi's global outlook on politics?
1: today's the anniversary of the speaker's uh, election as speaker for the second time uh, in this new congress and uh, she is quite dedicated to making sure that we protect the patient protection and affordable care act you know passed uh, bills to create jobs with better bigger paychecks reduce the role of corporate money in politics and promote publicly financed campaigns with hr1 and 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 push the Senate to pass and a Democratic president to sign all of the bills ranging from climate action now to the Dream and Promise Act to the Equality Act to the Elijah E. Cummings Lower Health Care Costs Now uh, Drug Pricing Bill to of course the ones I mentioned before HR eight and HR one 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 two for gun violence prevention and universal background checks. Those are the things that she wants to do. That's not a timeline set by a term. That's up to the voters, but it's a timeline set by the political strength that we can muster together to try to win the majorities we need to get those bills signed into law and also enacted into laws to change people's lives for the better.
0: Right, and it was just over a year ago that the future speaker told us the plan to take back the House on this podcast. How does your book illustrate the lessons that we can all learn about her planning and work for last year's blue wave election, which ultimately led to flipping the house.
1: Nancy Pelosi has always told us proper preparation prevents poor performance. She and my dad, Paul Pelosi, raised five kids who were born six years and one week apart. So every day for us always started the night before. After we had finished uh, clearing the dinner dishes and washing them, we set the table for breakfast, Uh, which, by the way, she still does. I came um, down the day after Christmas and also the day after New Year's, and uh, she um, had the uh, tables preset with the cereal already out there and a little uh, handwritten menu of what we were going to eat for breakfast. Um, so she is constantly always planning the next step, even while we're in the middle of the, of the meal that we're in or the experience that we're in, and that experience of getting ready and doing the tasks and putting one good day in front of the next, but also with Having five kids and having five diverse opinions, letting um, a lot of the coalition politics shift around and letting people kind of work out problems amongst themselves and not constantly um, stepping in every, every time the factions were fighting, but rather saying, let's have the freedom of a tightly knit idea. Let's have the, the, the freedom of a set of rules that we expect you to comport with, but at the same time, the free will to make your own decisions. Those sorts of ways that she raised us are the same ways that she runs her political coalitions and she runs her caucus, which is people are there to represent their district, to do their job. And at the same time, they're also there to build coalitions with each other and weave that tapestry together. They don't all agree on all things. Otherwise only one person would have to go to Washington and everyone else could stay home. Uh, But that discipline of respecting, tolerating, uh, championing diversity Uh, telling us constantly when the negatives come, don't agonize, organize and telling people, look, we have to get out there and work our hearts out every day. And if you have a bad day, let that end today. Let tomorrow be another chance for a good day. That ability to constantly let every day start fresh and put a new day in front of you is something that, um, I've seen her do since I was a kid, it's incredibly easy to say and really hard to do, right? Because we all hold on to our grudges, we hold on to our bad moods, or we hold on to that that emotional hangover from yesterday's fight or you know, yesterday's bad feeling or yesterday's um, loss within the campaign. Um, and instead, we have to just keep pushing forward with hope, with trust, with belief in each other. And when it came to the elections of 2018, focusing Jack hammering the message over and over and over again to protect our care and to listen to the grassroots who in weekly calls unfiltered by staff or consultants or pollsters would tell her this is what we care about. And when we're on social media, these are the stories that resonate. These are the stories that are going viral. These are the human interest stories that need to be told over and over again. And also, these are the non-traditional voices that need to be telling the stories. And I would just say one thing in saluting the resistance and saluting everybody who's fighting to protect our care, one thing that has been very different about protecting our care that's different from passing our care, when we passed the Affordable Care Act, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, it was a combination of the Patient's Bill of Rights and um, the Affordable Care Act together. Uh, There was a lot of support. There were a lot of stories um, that we told, faces of care of people who got out there and told their stories. But they were mostly providing their stories into a data bank, and then the politicians would tell the stories. And this time, 10 years later, this time the effort was more about let's use Nancy Pelosi's microphone. She hands it over to people to tell their own story themselves in their own way, in their own style, to their own community, in their own language sometimes, and in doing that, it's so much more powerful because then people don't just see their friends up there standing next to the House Democratic leader standing up next to a powerful politician. They see their friends up there setting the pace, telling the story and and owning their own narrative. and I think that change in her and that change in political organizing has been really critical, not only to her success, but to the success of the healthcare movement in general.
0: Are there any stories that you did not include in the book that you wanted to share with everybody?
1: Well, there's one story I shared this morning with respect to how we protest and how we work for peace. In 1991, I was a first-year student at Hastings College of the Law, and I went to be a legal observer to go down and protest the first war in Iraq, George H.W. Bush's war in Iraq. And so I went down to the San Francisco federal building and uh, one thing led to another and our post tests got more intense and I got arrested. And then I was under arrest for a while and then I was released and I walked the three blocks to Hastings and made it in time to go to my contracts class. And I went on with my day. When I got home, these are the days before cell phone, I had an answering machine tape and I pressed play on the tape and I got this message from my mom and it said, Christine, it's mom. That's always, you know, when she says it's mom as if I don't know her voice. Right. So that's always the first sign that maybe you're in a little bit of trouble. Are you in jail? Did you make it out in time to go to class? We are here in Congress working for a peaceful resolution. I hope you were all protesting for peace in a nonviolent way. Call me after your class. So I did, and she was relieved to learn that the charges were dismissed and I was released in time to attend my contracts class. But the point is that her lesson is always if you are trying to promote peace, then you have to act yourself in a peaceful way. You have to model the change that you want to see. But it's obviously old advice that MLK himself taught, that he himself learned from Gandhi. It's as old as organizing. But the fact of the matter is, with all of the intensity with which we go out and do our organizing, and in my case, get arrested, um, we also have to make sure that we are constantly planting a flag for our values and um, showing other people that dissent can be patriotic, it can be peaceful, it can be Values driven and driven from a heart full of love and not necessarily just anger, deep anger and fear and resentment that the president has put us in this position in the first place.
0: one of the last questions I had for you is, in in your personal opinion, how do you think this whole saga with Trump ends?
1: It ends with a Democratic president and a post-presidential indictment.
0: That's pretty straightforward. They know it.
1: That's why they won't let him testify to the Senate. That's why they didn't let him testify to Robert Mueller, instead answering a bunch of questions with over 30 instances of him saying he doesn't recall. Now, I understand why he doesn't recall which body part had the bone spur, and I understand why he doesn't doesn't recall, you know, which— you know which lie he told somebody to tell but you know who does recall people like Don McGahn the White House lawyer who's not the president's lawyer he's the people's lawyer who really should come testify you know who remembers John Bolton who was up tweeting you know about how this event uh, yeah, of 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 the the airstrike heard around the world was long in the planning yeah long in the planning to John Bolton apparently but not long enough for them to tell congress before they did it so he could come and testify there are there are plenty of people who should come before the American people and tell us the truth. But the one who won't is Donald Trump, because he knows and his lawyers know and Mitch McConnell knows that if he really wanted to exonerate himself, he would come testify. But he can't exonerate himself. And his lawyers, not Giuliani, but his actual lawyers are probably telling him, you are going to open yourself up to serious legal jeopardy by the Southern District of New York and by the state of New York if you actually answer those questions under oath to Congress. If he's as innocent as he says he is, he should testify. A thousand wild horses couldn't keep him away. He could have done that under the House rules, and he didn't. He could do that under the Senate rules, but he won't because what he fears the most is the truth coming out and him having a post-presidential indictment.
0: So let's say he loses and then he leaves office What and, and he does get indicted. What do you What would you guess he would get indicted for possibly?
1: Well, I think that there's a lot of facts that I don't know. So it's hard to say at this point, but we'll have to see what what evidence comes out. Let's see what happens if if what we're hearing right now is true. Certainly, there are a number of instances of fraud that have come out in the financial documents. The courts have them. The question is whether or not we are ever going to see them and under what circumstances. But I think that's what we're, we're looking at. And I think that when it comes to the financial fraud that Donald Trump has perpetuated on the people for years, nobody said it better, actually, than Kellyanne Conway when she worked for Ted Cruz in the primary of 2016. He rips off the little guy. He always rips off the people who work for him, the people who trust him, the people who put their money in his care. Those are the people he rips off. Those are the people that he doesn't care about. And unfortunately, those are the people who ended up voting for him. So we have to hope they break their chain of learned helplessness. But in the meantime, Democrats have to go out and register every base voter we can, every young Democratic voter that we can, and make sure that we're lifting up our nominee and lifting up our Senate and House and and governor and legislative uh, nominees uh, in 2020. That is the way to win. What does he understand? He understands raw power. What is the way to beat him and to defeat his enablers in the Republican Party?
0: Winning. Christine Pelosi, thank you so much for everything you do and for writing the book. Uh, Everybody, be sure to buy The Nancy Pelosi Way today. Link will be in the episode's notes. Uh, Christine, thank you again for joining me today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again to Christine Pelosi for joining us on the show. Thanks to our producer, Grant Stern. You can check out our website at dworkinreport.com. You can check out our book series website at meetthecandidates2020.com. Thanks again for listening. Keep resisting. Onward!